everyone. Welcome to Ideas and Insights. I am Badri Nathrao, your host for this program. Cruelty has many forms and incarceration is the highest form of cruelty. The United States has the dubious distinction of being a global leader in practicing this form of inhumanity. America is a carceral state wedded to a disturbingly punitive approach to crime and deviance. According to the American Civil Liberties Union, despite being just 5% of the global population, the United States has more than 20% of the world's prison population. Currently, we have nearly 2.1 million people behind bars. Since 1970, our incarcerated population has increased by 500%, far outpacing population growth and crime. We spend $80 billion annually on imprisonment. This scourge has affected racial minorities disproportionately. One out of every three black boys born today can expect to go to prison in his lifetime, as can one of every six Latino boys compared to one of every 17 white boys. For black men in their 30s, about one in every 12 is in prison or jail on any given day. The American Civil Liberties Union estimates that each year 650,000 people return from prison to their communities nationwide. They face nearly 50,000 federal, state, and local legal restrictions that make it difficult to integrate into society, including potentially losing voting rights. What we are witnessing today, thus, is the new Jim Crow. This alarming trend shows no sign of slowing down. Building prisons and warehousing people has become a national pastime. According to a recent study, nearly 75% of states have more prisons and jails than degree-granting colleges. Behind these grim figures lies a saga of unrelieved misery, broken families, and blighted lives. Incarceration is dehumanizing. It is an affront to human dignity. Long sentences for relatively minor offenses. Poorly managed privatized prisons. Brutality against inmates. And criminal records that leave ex-convicts hamstrung are all repugnant to the most elementary canons of decency and human rights. Besides, prisons have not deterred criminals. They have failed to rehabilitate prisoners. Prisons are dysfunctional and alienating. Yet, we labor under the illusion that imprisonment is the most effective strategy to contain crime. Underlying this unexamined conviction is an antiquated notion that confining deviants to the solitude of a prison cell has a chastening impact on them. It flies in the face of recent insights from neuroscience about responsibility, agency, and human culpability. 
the grotesque aberrations of our penal policies have given rise to a prison abolition movement. Political activist, philosopher and academic Angela Davis and other scholars in the black radical tradition are at the forefront of a growing movement opposing wholesale incarceration. Citing structural injustices, they argue against imprisonment and maintain that it is incompatible with just social order. Prisons, they point out, are linked to the practice of slavery in ways that make imprisonment intolerable for African Americans. The abolitionists also maintain that prisons resort to economic exploitation through unpaid prison labor. They subjugate racial minorities, repress political dissent, and camouflage intractable social problems. Black radical scholars and activists demand the rollback of the prison industrial complex and the reform of the criminal justice system. They aver that the growing privatization of the correctional industry, the rise of inequality due to neoliberal policies, and increasing instances of police atrocities against African Americans like George Floyd, all underscore the urgency of reimagining security and devising an innovative, inclusive architecture devoid of prisons. The call for prison abolition emanates from communities inured to centuries of oppression. Mainstream society, however, tends to peremptorily dismiss these demands as impractical and unwarranted. Discrediting prison abolition as the quixotic claim of fringe left-wing groups will not make the problem disappear. We need careful, compassionate consideration of the abolitionist perspective, which reconciles anguished arguments with practical challenges. A new book, The Idea of Prison Abolition, published by Princeton University Press this year, is a thoughtful engagement with the discourse of prison abolition. Its author, Dr. Tommy Shelby, is the Caldwell Titcom Professor of African and African American Studies and of Philosophy at Harvard University. An African American scholar with an abiding commitment to the emancipatory project of his community, Professor Shelby brings to his work the empathy of a fellow traveler and the disinterested discipline of a scholar. Professor Shelby has a preternatural understanding of the agony of the African-American community. He is acutely conscious of the enormities of the criminal justice system. Dr. Shelby is sensitive to the pain that prompts the call for prison abolition. Yet, in an exemplary display of intellectual courage, he differs from fellow ideologues in the black radical movement and rejects the demand for prison abolition. Instead, Professor Shelby believes that we can reform the sclerotic prison system to serve legitimate ends. Predicating his thesis on a meticulous analysis of the different strands of abolitionist thought, he proposes concrete ideas such as a limited moratorium on imprisonment, 
the use of not-for-profit prisons, decriminalizing minor offenses, shorter sentences for serious crimes, the provision of mental health care for prison inmates, and the re-education of criminal justice personnel. Though convinced about the need for correctional facilities, Professor Shelby advocates restricting prison terms for people likely to hurt others and themselves and to those driven to crimes due to mental illnesses. A votary of the transformative justice movement, Professor Shelby is an ardent believer in its therapeutic powers. His book, originally delivered as the Carl G. Hempel Lectures at Princeton University in 2018, is a nuanced philosophical inquiry into the foundational underpinnings of the abolitionist movement. In addition to its masterful survey of the abolitionist debate, the idea of prison abolition stands out for three distinguishing reasons. First, it provides a philosophical explanation for the continued relevance of prisons, albeit on a limited scale. Second, its author, Professor Shelby, alerts us to the challenges of creating a just society. Skeptical of the utopian strains of black radicalism, he urges readers to be agnostic about whether prisons will be obsolete in a fully just society. Third, Professor Shelby sees prison reform as a subset of a larger socioeconomic transformation that will improve the economic circumstances of low-skilled young males. This urgent task, he contends, requires abolishing the ghetto, not just the prison. Dr. Shelby joins me now to discuss the main themes of his book. Welcome to Ideas and Insights, Dr. Shelby. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Dr. Rao. I appreciate you having me on and really looking forward to our conversation. Let me begin by asking you a threshold question. Throughout your book, you have engaged with the ideas of Dr. Angela Davis, and you have shown your concern for and your interest in the issues that she raises. As I understand it, among other things, Dr. Davis is asking us to reimagine how we deal with people who are deviants. You are sympathetic to what she says, and yet you insist on reforms and appear to be opposing reimagining and reinventing the way we deal with deviants. I wonder why. Yeah, I mean, I, part of the reason why I wanted to write this book is because I, I most of the time I agree with um, Angela Davis on most issues, and um, her stance on prisons is part of what drove me to kind of think through my own views about whether I should be accepting a more radical position, you know, rather than a kind of radical reform position or not just reform of, of the, the criminal justice system, but also of the broader society, which I argue from my previous book, Dark Ghettos, um, there is this question about whether you should go further. Uh, mm -hmm. is, this, is this something you can't 
is the is, is the prison system something that we should really try to transcend? And so I, on the question of reimagining security, there in many ways I agree with with Davis and other abolitionists that there are a range of things that we could do that would bring down um, the problem of crime and uh, deal with the harm that it causes. Uh, I discussed that at, at some length. Maybe we'll get into those things. And I, I don't mean to be suggesting that the use of uh, punitive incarceration as like the primary tool or the only tool, uh -huh. um, I think it is a tool and, and one that I think can be defended in at least in certain limited circumstances. We will get into the details of your uh, emphasis on reforms momentarily. But for now, let me ask you a question uh, that is located in theoretical issues. You identify yourself as part of the black radical tradition, and you empathize with people like Angela Davis, Asata Shakur, and several other uh, black intellectuals who go by the title of abolitionists. Yet, on several theoretical grounds, you part ways. You do not go fully with them. Could you tell us about what theoretical differences you have with the black radical tradition and why you don't think you can go along with them fully? Well, I think one thing to say about the black radical tradition is that there are multiple interpretations mm -hmm. of that tradition. Um, many people are influenced by um, Cedric Robinson's very famous book, Black Marxism, where he offers up uh, detailed accounting of the emergence of that tradition and contrast it with more orthodox Marxist positions. And that view has been extremely influential. Um, but I think there are, uh, and I don't think that in Robinson's writings, you find a, a defense of prison abolition. So I don't think that it's like constitutive of that tradition that one is an, is an abolitionist. Many of the people who he identifies uh, as a part of it, including W.B. Du Bois but, um, and, and Franz Fanon and others, uh, abolition is not a constitutive part of their of their view. So I see the question of abolition as something that arises for people in that tradition. I think people in that tradition needs to, need to figure out what should be their posture mm -hmm. for this longstanding practice. What should be their posture toward a criminal justice system that uses incarceration to try to control crime and uses for many other nefarious purposes? How should we position ourselves in relation to people who are trying to reform that system? Should we see ourselves as allies with them or in some ways or as opposed to them? So I think this is a question that arises for those of us who identify with the black radical tradition and we need to situate ourselves um, uh, with respect to it. Uh, I wouldn't want to take the position, I don't think that Davis and others would take the position that it is uh, say a defining element of that tradition mm -hmm. to be opposed to all uses of incarceration, even in the case of incarceration as punishment. All right, let's move on to your characterization of prison abolition. You say it is a utopian idea for good and bad reasons. What do you mean by this? Well, there's in, in some ways, um, I mean, I, I think there are utopian dimensions to mm -hmm. abolition. Um, most people take that as the end of the discussion, <laughs> but I, I, I think it kind of starts the discussion in many ways because I think there are many things to be said in, in favor of utopian ideals and movements. Um, 
among the things that one might say, I mean, it's, it's important to denaturalize the prison, to not sort of see it as this inevitable thing that's always existed. We can never possibly do without it. We have done without it in some societies in the past, and perhaps we could do without it in the future. So one of the things that utopian imagination does is it gets us to rethink um, kind of what people settled common sense views that may not have that much going for them. Mm -hmm. It also encourages us to experiment, to think about what other social relations, what other practices might we do uh, even now alongside the criminal justice system to reduce our reliance on it. Other things that might even be more effective at reducing serious crime. And I think a utopian vision allows us to uh, to, to grasp for larger ideals, bigger things, to try to, um, in some ways, you know, rethink the foundations of our society, which many people regard as having um, deep structural dysfunction and injustice at its heart. Um, so I think that there are many things that's really positive about a utopian vision and not sort of becoming complacent and not becoming too adjusted to the injustices that surround us, and it's easy to do. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't regard utopianism as its uh, as abolitionist principle flaw. But you will surely agree that a lot of things that have come to pass were at one time considered utopian. There was a time when people thought that apartheid would never be abolished. There was a time when people thought that untouchability would never be abolished in India. And there was a time when people thought slavery would go on and on. And these utopian ideas were actualized. So what might seem utopian, I'm sure you agree, has the potential to being translated into reality. You would agree with that, would you? I would entirely agree with that. I would entirely agree with that. I mean, if, I, if the places where I might find myself hesitant to embrace a fully um, utopian vision are mostly around a, a couple of things. Um, I mean, some of uh, my dissertation was on um, some ideas in Marx and its relationship to moral philosophy. Mm -hmm. One of things you find in Karl Marx's work um, is a, a certain uh, dismissiveness toward uh, moral critiques of society, systematic moral critiques of society in favor of a kind of hard no scientific class party partisan mm -hmm. kind of uh, revolutionary uh, stance toward capitalism and, and capitalist civilization. And he would often pour scorn on his fellow socialists who he thought of as utopian. Um, in fact, there's a, a very uh, famous uh, short book by um, Friedrich Engels mm -hmm. called Utopian Scientific and uh, Utopian and Scientific where he critiques uh, the Correct. utopian elements of socialism in favor of a scientific approach. And those elements are also in the Communist, Festo, the Communist Manifesto. So I think that uh, there are things to be gained from, say, the utopian socialists and from those people who think that it's important to have broad moral ideals, to defend them, to try to give a systematic account for them. And you know that's an element of utopianism I, I like. But I also think that Marx is has something going for his point of view, that it is it's a, it's a conception of structural transformation that's rooted in a scientific understanding of society and even of history that takes seriously the importance of really systematic empirical study of our reality 
and seeing that in some ways a constraint on what's feasible. Um, not that one can't uh, imagine ways beyond, you don't want to be complacent about what's feasible. You always want to have an ambitious conception right. of what you can do. But because there can be unintended consequences, because things can go really badly, when you try to engage in broad structural transformation, uh, it is important to have your vision rooted in a scientific understanding of social reality. And so to the extent that, ab that uh, abolitionists are skeptical of the more social scientific approaches to uh, understanding reality and to critiquing it, um, I find myself somewhat hesitant. Um, I think it's also fair to say, and you, you mentioned this in your, your, your lovely introduction of the book, um, which I think captured a lot of what I was trying to do. Um, another element of Marx's view is a, a sense that, you know, it's hard to get a full grasp of, of human capability and, and, mm -hmm. and human nature under these kinds of conditions. We might find ourselves with a very different set of dispositions and habits of mind under very, under much more just conditions, you know, if we were able we were able to transcend the forms of economic exploitation and political domination that are so characteristic of our age, we might find that we ourselves are rather different people. But it's hard for us to tell from this vantage point what we would really be like. And so, I, my my own view is that abolition should be an aspiration, should be something we should try to create the conditions where prisons are not necessary. But I don't think we can situate ourselves now, epistemically, from a knowledge point of view, saying that we know now that we will be the kinds of people under those conditions who wouldn't engage in wrongful aggression that's harmful to others. And I think on that, on that point, we should be agnostic about that question, but have high aspirations for what's possible. We will pursue these uh, uh, issues in greater detail uh, later in the interview. But for now, let me turn to your discussion of the work of uh, political prisoners, uh, George uh, Jackson, Huey Newton, Asata Shakur, and Angela Davis. These uh, political prisoners who spent a significant amount of time in prison and wrote about their experiences see their work as neo-slavery uh, uh, narratives. And uh, they have, of course, talked at length about the horrendous conditions in prison, and uh, they see a continuity between slave era circumstances and what we see in prisons today. And they go to the extent of saying that the Emancipation Proclamation just changed the uh, status of uh, slaves from chattel slavery to economic slavery and that nothing has changed. Do you agree with this analysis? Mm. Um, it's certainly clear that there are uh, elements of injustice mm -hmm. that have persisted over historical eras with um, when it comes to the experiences of Africans and peoples of African descent in the Americas. There, there is some continuity in the forms of treatment. Um, but I think there are clearly some, some disanalogies as well. There are some ways in which things have departed from the experience, not only with slavery, but even from 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 Jim Crow, mm -hmm. uh, I am inspired by those those books. I, I that's part of why I wanted to write about them because I think that they're 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 great books. In many ways, to give you a perspective on what it's like to be inside prison, they help you understand the important uh, uh, problem of political repression. So when people try to rise up against 
uh, systemic injustice. They often find a state coming down on them aggressively, violently, even sometimes using military tactics to undermine a movement. Mm -hmm. And I think they're excellent uh, uh, ways into that problem, not just a problem in the U.S. It happens to other places as well. Um, And I I, I find it inspiring. But I, I... one thing that I worry about in a lot of uh, radical and, and left-leaning discourse is, uh, I think, an over-reliance on comparing things to slavery in order to critique them. Uh, slavery is a terrible practice, objectionable on so many grounds you could hardly list them all. Um, but I don't think we need to limit ourselves when we're trying to critique institutions to trying to show that they're somehow an instance of slavery, an extension of slavery, akin to slavery. They might have some elements they share in common with it, uh, but there may be other grounds, perfectly um, uh, articulable grounds for opposition to current practices that don't rely on um, sometimes hyperbolic use of slavery analogies. And I wanted to draw attention to that, not because I don't think that it's ever apt, sometimes it is, but I think there's a tendency to kind of, because, because slavery is such a powerful, iconic form of injustice, mm-hmm. it's tempting to just rely on it exclusively when we're trying to critique um, injustices. And it sometimes, I think, can mislead. So you are saying, if I've understood you correctly, that the uh, analogy to slavery is, in some instances, overdrawn. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Now, let me move to something else in your book that seems uh, somewhat contradictory. For instance, you agree that imprisonment is inhumane, but you also say that prisons are not inherently unjust. How do you explain this paradox? Well, I mean, of course, any instance of the practice of incarceration can be inhumane. I take it that the issue um, here that I'm trying to address is a is a, a debate between uh, reformers, sometimes radical reformers and abolitionists, mm-hmm. who all agree that imprisonment in the United States and many other places is a grossly inhumane and an assault on human dignity. The question between them, the disagreement between them, is whether there is a form of incarceration that we could feasibly bring about that wouldn't be dehumanizing mm-hmm. or inhumane. And so that's why takes, that's an issue. It's not, it, what's not an issue is whether there's many things to be said about, especially US prisons, um, federal and state prisons, and many, many US jails that are gonna be dehumanizing and uh, inhumane. And reformers, of course, want to change those things. The, the issue is whether those things can be changed, whether and it, whether it's worth trying to change those things so that the practice of imprisonment could be legitimate, um, in part because it is humane and, uh, and respects human dignity. On the question of uh, retributive justifications for punishment, like Angela Davis, you reject these justifications and say that society has no right to seek revenge or retribution. However, with respect to heinous crimes like murder and and rape and so on, you say that 
people who commit these crimes cannot escape culpability because they are equipped with capacity for rational and free action. I have two questions for you on this. Number one, isn't it true that though seemingly correct, what you're saying could be somewhat uh, erroneous because there are a lot of people who come from dysfunctional backgrounds, broken families. They don't have the benefit of uh, nurturing and socialization that more fortunate people like I and you have. And so, while it is true that they have the potential for rational thinking, it almost uh, lies dormant. How justified are we in ascribing to them a rationality that they have never had a chance to develop? Well, I, I suppose it, it, it certainly can be true that people can go under circumstances that erode their agency and that, or underdevelop their rational and moral agency. I think that could certainly be true. And in those instances, we might think that some of their conduct, even if wrongful, is excusable and should be responded to in a way that's non-punitive. Um, I don't think that that way of thinking about human agency, if you push it too far, is really compatible with the principles of the Black radical tradition. Um, this is a tradition that celebrates slave revolts and uprisings. It celebrates the ways in which the enslaved um, fought against their oppressors, the way in which they understood and knew that they were being treated unjustly, the ways in which they broke the rules, transgressed the rules to affirm their dignity and to express their opposition to their treatment. And this practice, of course, continues on through um, the Jim Crow era, the ghettoization after the post-civil post rights uh, period. This is true in other Black struggles and anti-colonial struggles, and anti-apartheid struggle, that the oppressed, even the deeply oppressed, often exhibit great moral agency, a, a, an appreciation of a deep sense of justice and appreciation for how they've been wronged. And they understand that there are some ways that people ought not be treated. Uh, and and I, so I don't think you, we want to press the idea, even though it's sometimes true, that injustice can uh, warp our moral agency. I think that can, can be true. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we have many examples, celebrated examples, where uh, the oppressed, even the deeply oppressed, uh, clearly exhibit uh, moral agency. And that's true, especially for people that you mentioned earlier, for the, the political prisoners you mentioned earlier, because these are people who are talking about the political agency of the imprisoned themselves, the way in which people who have been in prison can organize, rise up, resist their mistreatment inside the prison walls and outside. People who are a part of a broader movement inside and outside prison walls to try to change things because they regard them as unjust. So I, I, I think we should be slow to attribute deeply compromised moral agency to, to the oppressed if we want to embrace this broader vision, which I do. Your point is well taken, Dr. Shelby. Uh, I'm not for a minute suggesting that just because someone belongs to a certain race or a community that they are likely to have compromised moral agency. No, that's not the point. Uh, I was just trying to hint that some folks under 
certain circumstances might not have the conflict resolution skills that would avoid the circumstances that they eventually get into. But let's move on. There's one other point that I want to make. That is that we now have insights from neuroscience that shed new light on issues like responsibility, agency, and human culpability. And these insights throw into question a slew of assumptions that we make about how and why uh, people act in a particular situation. This is not just a challenge for the issue that we are discussing, namely prison abolition, but it's a general challenge in the field of law, namely how far should we uh, ethically and legally go in ascribing moral agency because of the insights that we've gotten from neuroscience. This is an emerging field. I just wondered if you had uh, some thoughts on this. Um. It's such a complicated set of questions because now we're going to <laughs> fairly deep philosophical questions about how to understand um, uh, free will and agency, responsibility, accountability. It's like, and there's a you know vast, vast literature taking up this these these sorts of questions. And I don't know that I can say anything um, brief here to try to address the underlying concern, except I do think that it's sort of not quite in the spirit. I think of the abolitionist outlook to um, suggest that even people who are committing or, you know, um, you know, ordinary crimes that they are, you know, can't really be held accountable for what, what they've done. Mm -hmm. Mostly what you get is an emphasis and correctly on that many of the things where we, we choose to use imprisonment to respond to um, either shouldn't be criminalized at all, or there are things that we have other ways of responding to without going to such drastic measures like incarceration. Like so many economic crimes, many crimes that are that do involve, say, you know, um, people exhibiting low levels of self-control, um, when they don't rise to the level of creating, you know, um, deep and irreparable harm, I think we have other ways in which we can respond to it, both prospectively and in, in retrospect. Um, I think that's that's kind of the, the that, that's the orientation, I think, of many of the radical, radical abolitionists, you know, to maintain a notion of moral accountability, but to recognize that um, many people who are being held accountable are uh, uh, living under deeply unjust conditions that they shouldn't be. And so some of their wrongdoing is at least in part uh, uh, been, been contributed to by the social conditions they're living under. And so a responsibility of the broader public and of and, and government to see to changing. Um, but there still remains an element of responsibility not to harm others in certain egregious ways. So in cases of, of homicide or rapes or an aggravated assault, and these sort of serious forms of aggression that is pretty difficult to defend even under deeply unjust conditions, there, it is not that the stance isn't so much to say they couldn't help it, mm -hmm. but rather to see one the ways in which the circumstances they live under contributed to to them acting in those ways, and the ways in which we all could alter those circumstances to make it give them greater agency, greater control over their impulses, 
and to perhaps shift the habits of mind that will lead me to think that these are things that would be acceptable to do. All right, let's move on now to an issue that you uh, discuss repeatedly in your book. Like Angela Davis and other black uh, radical uh, writers, you have flagged structural uh, inadequacies and how they affect the African-American community disproportionately. For instance, uh, inequality that has come in the wake of neoliberalism, degrading stereotypes, the lacunae in the justice system, all of them have had the impact of alienating whole communities from not just the justice system, but from the very idea of justice that the rest of us entertain. Gandhi once said, when law becomes lawless, disobedience becomes duty. Are we at that point here in the United States? And is that why prison mm -hmm. abolition has emerged as a significant discourse? That's very interesting. Um, I think in some ways we are in that space, if, or at least close to it, mm -hmm. where we might worry that, I mean, I think of political legitimacy as something that uh, comes in degrees. Mm -hmm. um, so you can have a society uh, that uh, exhibits a range of injustices, but yet it, it maintains some level of legitimacy and and so we should um, show it some allegiance, some respect, cooperate to some extent, even as we try to change it. And sometimes things can get so bad that um, you know the appropriate action is 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 more aggressive, more militant opposition to it. And this is always a question of judgment, right? Um, mm -hmm. We all have to kind of come to terms with this. Like, are we in that place? Mm -hmm. To what extent can we rely on institutions and practices long established that exist? to try to correct things and make them better and to what extent we need to take a, a more a more militant stance against them and try something radically new. It's always a difficult question. I think with the criminal justice system, it has pretty severe mm -hmm. uh, flaws. And, you know, I myself would be inclined to uh, to really pretty dramatically reduce our reliance on it in, in its current state. And to in to in some cases, depending on the crime, mm -hmm. to and, uh, assist people in evading um, having to be brought into its clutches. Um, and so in that way, you know, it, that, that would be a fairly strong militant stance that I have a lot of, a lot of sympathy for. Um, but we might find ourselves with with some and in some circumstances and with some people um, having to at, at a minimum uh, allow a state that is unjust in many ways to help us deal with their aggression mm -hmm. um, when it is so destructive to to our communities and we don't have mechanisms for um, for limiting it or containing it. And that's a kind of compromise of injustice, if you like, which we sometimes have to make as we try to look out for the most vulnerable and the most disadvantaged. Sometimes we we have to make some compromises with injustice to try to protect them. And I think in, in some circumstances that, that might be true. We might have to, to participate in uh, a criminal justice system that we think is flawed in countless ways um, as the lesser of, of two evils. Let's now uh, turn to your views on involuntary labor in prisons. 
you see virtue in this kind of work and you think it helps prisoners uh, learn new skills, uh, make themselves uh, marketable in the labor market when they get out of prison, they can save some money and so on. Surely you agree that big business and corporations have used prison labor and benefited immensely while paying prisoners a pittance. Now that is not fair, is it? I certainly would agree with you that um, uh, we should you know, really limit the use of uh, corporations in the criminal justice system. Um, we can talk later if you like more about the, some of the, the, the constraints on our ability to completely uh, lim uh, limit their um, their role in criminal justice practices. But we certainly we have a vulnerable population uh, under custodial control and care uh, who don't have the same liberties that other people have to refuse to participate in various um, corporate enterprises. And we have to protect those, protect them against that kind of predation. Um, so I, I surely think that when I do speak speak of uh, the benefits of work inside prisons, I'm I'm I'm, I'm thinking primarily of uh, under under very different circumstances than people currently uh, uh, live under while they're in prison, right? So I'm not imagining. I think prisons are sufficiently, at least in the United States, sufficiently um, uh, horrifying and inhumane that demanding that people work under those conditions is probably an insult to their to their, to their, to their dignity and um and really just adds um greater burdens onto an already overly burdened situation so i am not recommending um a push for more involuntary labor under those conditions uh, i'm more speaking about under uh under more just circumstances you know if you had a prison system, which I think we one, one might still need to rely on one, you know, would it be unjust to uh, expect those imprisoned to to work? And I think in some circumstances it would not be unjust, and in some circumstances it would be to their benefit to have, a, if not be required to work, at least to be enabled to have the opportunity to work. And by that, I don't necessarily mean work for a for-profit company. Um, which there are many things to be said against that. Well, let me ask you a quick follow-up question. Uh, while talking about uh, involuntary labor in prisons, you also say that asking people to work in prison, work involuntarily and for a small amount of money, particularly after they have been, what, as you say, justly convicted, is fair. I am baffled that you have such faith in just conviction. If we recall that just about 2% of criminal cases go for trial, uh, in the overwhelming majority of instances, people plea bargain and plead guilty because they just don't have the resources to vindicate their rights. How can we talk about just conviction? What do you have to say to that? Sure, I think it's important here to um, distinguish sort of two questions that are that are um, uh, you know in dispute um, uh -huh. reformers and abolitionists. So some questions are about um, you know what to do now. Mm -hmm. right? 
what should be our posture toward the existing criminal justice system, right? Should we, uh, is it, should we uh, allow corporations to be, to play a role in it? Uh, what kinds of programs should be in there and so on? Should we imprison people at all? How much can we trust that the people who have been convicted have been justly convicted? There are a bunch of questions of that sort. Mm -hmm. There are some questions what we started with that are more aspirational, uh, more about the society we could build. They're more about if we if we could create more just circumstances, how would we respond to criminal wrongdoing in that case, right? Mm -hmm. So some of the things, are, the, the, the things you're talking about here are questions of, of the second sort. They're questions about, you know, does just what does justice require? So if you had a just society, is there a place for the practice of imprisonment within it? What would the criminal justice system be like? What could we expect? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, to, what kind of a treatment can we expect if we uh, engage in serious criminal wrongdoing, right? What what would constitute fair treatment of those who've been accused and so on? So there, that's a, a broader philosophical question about what we should be aspiring to. And part of what's in dispute amongst between the abolitionists and the reformers is whether in such a vision of a just society, is there a place for a criminal justice system? Is there a place for the practice of imprisonment within it? Mm -hmm. So some of the questions you're asking me about are really about that. Some of the questions, though, are about the the our current situation, which many radical reformers and abolitionists are going to agree are grossly unjust. And there's many reasons to be skeptical that, that the people who've been convicted have been justly convicted. There are many objections to the things that have been criminalized, whether those things should even be criminal offenses. Mm -hmm. There will be disagreements over, I mean, agreements, I should say, over uh over reliance on incarceration to deal with a number of crimes that are not real, don't cross cause serious harm, not irreparable harm. There are smaller infractions that could be dealt with in other less harmful ways. So I, I think it's important to dis, to distinguish the two questions that abolitionists and reformers might be disagreeing about, um, because I think many of them um, are of, of a more uh, have to do more with our, our broader aspirations and less to do with the the current criminal justice system, which in most cases, there's great agreement about the flaws. Let me bring you back to a question we discussed a moment ago, namely the relationship between enslavement and imprisonment. Mm -hmm. Discussing this, you concede that the situation in several prisons across the country uh, appears to be a continuation of what obtained during the slave era and you think it is totally unacceptable. But at the same time, you assert that inherited institutions can be reformed. Now, there are two issues here. Are we ignoring institutional inertia? Because once a set of practices are a part of an institution, uh, they are hard to get rid of unless we take drastic measures and they might continue for a long time. And secondly, isn't there an ecosystem that sustains all the practices that are part of the uh, prison system? Given this, I am somewhat intrigued that you still maintain that uh, inherited institutions can be reformed. Could you elaborate on that, please? Sure. Um, I mean, so taking two steps, I mean, one, there are institutions uh -huh. that we've inherited that 
um, there's much to say against them in, in the past. Uh, that includes our educational system, um, which um, was highly exclusionary, um, had uh, you know, very few people who were not uh, wealthy white men would have had access to formal education. Mm -hmm. um, when people did get access to education um, from more uh, subordinate or oppressed groups, it was, it was uh, often horrible and even, if you like, resembled uh, some features of imprisonment. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, many of us believe that these are practices that can be improved upon, that their, that their goals are legitimate, and we can change the rules, we can change the personnel, we can alter them so that they serve those legitimate ends, even though we've inherited them from uh, a deeply unjust past. I'd also say that I think it's consistent with uh, a broadly uh, Marxist outlook on historical change. I mean, part of what Marx was when he, in, in his vision of um, socialism, he imagined that the new form of social life would emerge out of the ruins of the old. It mm -hmm. would already be prefigured in, in, in the old. And many of the practices that existed under unjust um, social formations um, would be preserved, except they would be, there were some conditions would be, would, be, would be changed. Some of the aims would be changed, but many of those things would be preserved. In fact, the, the, the productive power of capitalism itself, by how it organizes work, how it uses resources in an efficient way, that some of those would be preserved, except they wouldn't be for purposes of private profit. <clears throat> and so the fact that they were used and for over centuries to exploit and dominate others doesn't mean that they have no place in um, the new form of new form of life that we're trying to create. So I don't think it's particularly paradoxical to think that a practice like imprisonment that might have had um, been used for purposes of repression, exploitation, and domination, and the like, might find a place with new personnel under different conditions, with new rules, might find a place in a new form of life that we um, would cherish and want to support. Even if we concede your point, Dr. Shelby, surely you would agree that this transformation that you are talking about requires political will, huge resources, qualified personnel, and a lot of time. And on the other hand, you have whole segments of the population impatient for change. They are struggling under oppressive circumstances it would be a hard sell to go to them and say, look, we have inherited institutions that have some aberrations, but we will fix them. We will eventually make them good. Uh, in the fullness of time, that might happen. But then there are people who want change now because they are being affected. Families are being torn asunder as we speak. What do you say to that? Right, that's why I say you, you on the, the, the two questions, what do we do now and what should we aspire to, right? On the question, what do, what do we do now? I mean, I do think, um, you know, there are very few abolitionists that I'm aware of who believe in what you might call radical decarceration, who believe that um, we should admit nobody else to prison 
everybody that's currently in prison should be released today. Um, that position, I, 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 you, you rarely see. I certainly don't see that in, in Angela Davis's work. It's always thought of as a long-term project to abolish prisons and expectation that some people will remain in prison during a time as we try to create the conditions where we don't need them. So when we think about what to do now, I think we want to limit our use of them uh, to really only the most serious um, wrongs, to only those um, uh, wrongs that create a kind of great, deep harm that can't be easily repaired or repaired at all, or to cause lasting trauma, um, which we know is difficult to overcome. In those li more limited cases of harmful wrongdoing, we might find that we have to rely on incarceration to some extent. That doesn't mean we need to have long sentences like we do, which are in the United States are just so much higher than they are in many other um, uh, 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 modern societies. Um, so we could reduce the, the penalty. There's much we can do while people are in prison to give them service services and help them to, to um, uh, re-enter society as equals. Much we can do once we release them to give them more opportunities to be reintegrated into society. So in the meantime, um, as we try to create the conditions for a more just society, um, we certainly want to dramatically reduce our reliance on prisons. But I don't think many people think that the response should be um, that we release everybody currently in prison, that we never imprison anybody else until we can create those conditions. That would be a rather, I think, extreme view. And I think not a, not a way of protecting, I think, the most vulnerable and oppressed from the kinds of aggression that we could generally expect if we were to take such a stance. Dr. Shelby, we are almost out of time. I have two quick questions. Could you very briefly uh, tell us about your idea of a moratorium on new imprisonment and a private not-for-profit prisons, please. Sure. So I, I was just sort of, without naming it, <clears throat> describing a kind of um, restricted moratorium. Uh, so rather than the radical decarceration position I described, uh, a, a limited moratorium would mean, you know, many of the things that are currently um, constituted as felonies, especially many economic crimes, <clears throat> um, crimes that involve um, deception, uh, many of these things are a response to inequality and concentrated poverty. And I think in those cases, we have other ways of responding to those kinds of wrongs. They also are, don't cause the kind of deep irreparable harm or, or, or trauma that would justify an aggressive punitive response. Um, so when I speak of, of, of a limited moratorium, I think we should really narrowly restrict our use of imprisonment to really uh -huh. the worst, worst kinds of criminal defending and from people who have shown themselves to not be responsive to other ways of trying to modify their behavior. So that's what I, what I have in mind by a kind of limited moratorium. And I think that would extend to the case of people who are uh, uh, currently in jail or facing jail who are merely accused of a crime and have not actually um, been convicted of a crime, um, who often find themselves facing large bail fees or find themselves in prison. I think we um, should, as again, in other societies, they already do, um, you know, really rely on incarceration for the accused only when we have really strong reasons to believe they're a threat to the, to the public. And so we don't need to rely on um, jail or high bail fees 
in order to make sure people are held accountable for um, the things that they've been accused of. So that's kind of how, what I have in mind by limited moratorium. And, you know, on the nonprofit prisons, I mean, I, have, I share the objections to uh, the prison industrial complex that many abolitionists have, mm -hmm. um, all the various problems with allowing um, big business to play a role in criminal justice. It's, uh, it, there, there are um, all kinds of abuses you can expect there, been much documented, and it creates perverse incentives of various sorts. But I do think there might be a place for, for nonprofit organizations to play a role, especially with in-prison services, to try to, again, on the just circumstance, on the just circumstance, we wouldn't do this, but under the extreme unjust circumstances that we currently face, we sometimes have to take drastic um, and unconventional measures. And that might mean some nonprofit organizations participating in in-prison services to try to attend to the needs of the imprisoned, many of whom are deeply oppressed or come from oppressed backgrounds. Um, this would be a limited measure, uh, but I think it wouldn't be subject to the same kinds of objections as for-profit organizations um, role in in the, the, the criminal justice system. And I think there could be something to be said for it. Dr. Shelby, we are completely out of time, but I have to ask you this question. You end your book by making a fervent plea for getting rid of the ghetto, abolishing the ghetto, in addition to abolishing the prison. Uh, can you tell us about that? What do you mean by abolishing the ghetto? We have very little time, I'm afraid. Well, the short answer is I, I wrote a book about it called Dark Ghettos. <laughs> that was uh -huh. my, my previous book, which is a call for a concerted effort to abolish the ghetto, which would require not not so much dispersing people, what some people call for dispersing the black poor, but rather uh, uh, transform the conditions under which we all live, mm -hmm. the conditions that create great concentrated disadvantage and that lock many poor black people under you know unbearable circumstances and which often lead to crime. So the abolition of the ghetto, I think, um, responds to many of the concerns I think abolitionists have. Right. That is because it's the, the reason we find so many poor black and brown people in prison is because they're locked in deep disadvantage um, over many years, sometimes generations, which inevitably um, leads to higher rates of criminal offending and dysfunction in those communities. And so abolishing the conditions that create ghettos is a way of responding to the, the very problems, I think, that animate the abolitionist vision. Dr. Shelby, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We appreciate your insights and appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much, Dr. Roy. I appreciate you having me on. That's it for this episode of Ideas and Insights. Thanks for joining us today. In the coming weeks, we will discuss a world of insecurity democratic disenchantment in rich and poor countries, written by Professor Pranab Bardhan. In this book, published by Harvard University Press this year, Professor Bardhan offers an illuminating account of the corrosion of liberal democracy in rich and poor countries alike, arguing that anti-democratic sentiment reflects fear of material and cultural loss, not a critique of liberalism's failure to deliver equality and suggesting possible ways out. Watch out for an exciting discussion in the coming weeks. Until then, stay safe and goodbye.